Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. We have a full panel today. Uh, first, we welcome our old friend uh, and founding member of Three Moves Ahead, Tom Chick. Tom, welcome to the show. If anyone needs a coffee today, let me know. I'm happy to run and get you one. We also welcome our producer, Michael Hermes. Hi, Rob. Happy to be back on. And finally, we brought back our old friend, Eric Hansen. Don't really know why you bring me into this, but I'm glad to be here. Well, the reason the reason we imported you for this particular episode, Eric, is because I think we've we have a history on this show of dragging you away from your uh, from your lair at Gamers with Jobs and bring you over to talk about Victorian era strategy games. Uh, so it seemed just appropriate that we'd have you back to talk about Victoria Two again, uh, which I don't think we've talked about on this show in about two years at least. Uh, and the reason we're back to it now is because it just released a new expansion, uh, Heart of Darkness. I almost said Hearts of Iron. Uh, so there's too many hearts in, uh, in, in the Paradox lineup. We are talking about Heart of Darkness, the uh, latest expansion for Victoria 2, that changes quite a bit uh, to the point where I feel like a lot of this episode is going to be me going back and sort of disavowing some of the things I've said about Victoria 2 over the years. But Excellent. Well, hey, hold your horses there, Michael. Just don't get too excited, okay? I stand, it still has some issues. There's a far more important reason that we should be talking about Victoria 2 right now, and that is because assuming that you're listening to this the day that it drops, this game gets, this series gets an entire day devoted to it. I just want to say to everyone who's not in America, happy Victoria Day. Because that's what today is. I don't know if you guys know that. There's no Europa wow. Universalis Day. There's no Hearts of Iron Day. There's certainly no Crusader <laughs> Kings Day. Uh, Victoria Day is today. So what better day to talk about this game? Well, now we are committed to posting on Monday. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to have to get up like a respectable hour or something and do this. Okay, fine. Yeah, happy Victoria Day, guys. <laughs> Extra work for Rob. Uh, isn't that just appropriate, though? It makes more work for the Colonials. Uh, anyway... <laughs> So, Tom, actually, I wanted to start with you because you were uh, you sort of described yourself in our email thread leading up to the show as a total Vicky cheerleader, and you yes. threatened to bring pom poms, uh, which yes. I kind of wish we were doing a video cast actually because I would love to see that. But I'm kind of curious to hear uh, why you're wearing why you know why you're dressed up in a uh, skirt and a Letterman's jacket for uh, for Vicky too. Yep, there's a big old V right here on my chest. I got the skirt on. Uh, let's see. So the reason that I am a huge fan, I would say that Victoria, as, as a series, is probably the most important thing that happens to strategy games uh, since the original Civilization. Now, that's a fairly grandiose pronouncement, um, but I, I think I can defend it in that uh, I feel that the model that Paradox uses in Victoria uh, is... Uh, pretty much unprecedented. If you guys can think of another game that takes this approach, I would certainly love to hear about it. Um, but but I think there's enormous contemporary relevance to the way Victoria models populations and the way it models the top-down versus bottom-up nature of political decisions. Um, so to, to sort of briefly unpack this... Starting with chess and going up through war games, and the, the computer game expression of that is civilization, the idea in a strategy game is that you take a piece and you plop it on a board, and you move it where you want it to be on that board. There's this almost godlike conceit where you're a hand picking a piece up and you're putting it down. Uh, even in civilization, which takes this basic concept and adds cool models for things like, like culture and e economies and technology, the basic idea is you are putting things on a map to draw resources out to make more things for that map, and you're moving armies around, and it's basically territory control. That, that's the, that's a huge conceit in strategy gaming and sports, you know, chess. We all know territory control. What what I love about Victoria too, and you can see Paradox sort of working their way up to this with all of their kind of spreadsheet-driven strategy games. What I love about Victoria too is its model of strategy gaming as a bottom-up thing. How it models populations, and those populations determine what you can and cannot do. Uh, those populations are basically your playing pieces, and you don't get the luxury of picking them up and putting them down. You don't get to move them around. You, If you're lucky, you can maybe tweak them a little bit, but they drive your decisions rather than you moving pieces around. Uh, and, and I just feel this model is enormously relevant to us today 
uh, in the beginning of the 21st century, um, because this model of how the world works, how political decisions are made, how economies are, are driven, how uh, nations interact, uh, I feel we see that so vividly today in things like the Arab Spring or domestically the, the goofy Tea Party movement. Um, and I just feel that those sort of sorts of things, you would have to sort of cludge some work around in a game like Civilization to recreate that. But Victoria 2, the, the model for how it represents the world, it, it, it easily expresses what we're seeing as such a vivid part of the political scene today. Um, so for that reason, uh, with some others that I'm looking forward to talking about, I feel that Victoria and Victoria 2 are probably some of the most important strategy games we've seen uh, since Civilization. Wow, straight out of the gate, raising the stakes for this conversation. Okay, uh, I, did, I, did not, I did not expect it to go in that direction, but uh, Michael, I just did. I just hear you agreeing. Yes. All right. So, so you you share some of these. Uh, you share this view. I, I share it well. When Tom phrases it that way, uh, I I can see that it uh, it's unique in its approach, and it's it is important that way. Um, and it's something that I recognized as uh, a feature that I liked about it, in the sense that it is almost less of a strategy game than a straight up like simulation game. Um, yeah. And I, I really enjoy those. I like Dwarf Fortress. I like out of the park baseball quite a bit now. Um, even the Kairosoft games on, on mobile where you're just kind of directing things. It's a very deist point of view or it's kind of the, the watchmaker that set things in motions and then, yeah. and then they play out. Um, which to me, I love. And maybe I should have had more ant farms as a kid, but I just like the, uh, the way you can watch things unfold and you, you, things can take unexpected turns and you can guide them, but never directly um, um, steer them. So I think Tom's right. I think that's one of the most appealing parts of the game for me. And I, I would like to also add to that, you know, uh, when you know, mentioning that deist approach and, and, and that, that model, uh, I, I love that you take that angle with it, with it by the way. Um, but uh, I, but well, actually, I want to hear from uh, from Eric and Rob about this before I start to plumb some of the tangents from this. Eric, tell me you have reservations. I have reservations because of the way it was phrased, um, and I, I don't think that Victoria Two is the only game that gets uh, deeper and more complex to the point of becoming uh, more of a simulation than a strategy game. Uh, so I, I would take issue with that. But at the same time, I recognize that when it comes to most grand strategy games and 4X games and all, you know, we can argue the semantics of which label applies to which, uh, but they tend to uh, have two main conceits that are artificial. One is the, the continuation of a single uh, ruler who gets to really control things over the course of decades or centuries or even longer than that sometimes, if you're talking about the sieves, things like that. Um, and the other is that sort of treating a country as a cohesive whole with borders being every bit as physical and solid as a cell wall, which is very much not the case in reality, which is why I think that it does strike me as important to play games like this and interesting to play games like this because you end up seeing things you end up seeing the cracks in that facade and the game will still let you be the same ruler for a hundred years, but it won't let you be that authoritarian ruler who pretends to still be the president for this four year term. And then the next president for the next four year term and the same, there's little things like, you know, if you take this choice, it will encourage people from nearby to emigrate to your country uh, rather than assuming that you know Danes are always Danes and Swedes are always Swedes, and we'll just stare each other over this little spit of of water and grumble because we are always different. I would say though that Victoria does one of the better jobs of handling that yeah, border absolutely. issue because you there are special events that fire or will come up based on your your empire. And I remember a game where I was Austria. And Austria had already absorbed all of these nations around it that didn't see themselves as part of it. So, you know, when you zoomed out the map, they were red or purple or whatever. But there was a strong population of people that uh, needed issues voted on, like whether or not they had to adopt the national language or whether or not they had to, to fall under, you know, full citizenship. And I always liked the fact that it kind of modeled that when you overtake somebody, it's not a, a light switch where they're just 
happy to be part of the club, but there's, you know, a gray border where they have to make decisions about whether or not to kind of force that on people or let them maintain their national identity and kind of be their own thing, but under one umbrella. But, well, I just want to say, Eric, I mean, when you say Danes are always Danes and Swedes are always Swedes, that's absolutely not the case. If you play as Denmark or you play as Sweden, you know, you wait until about 1860 or whatever, and you're liable to be playing as, as greater Scandinavia. Uh, yeah. I, I sort of feel that uh, there, there's definitely, and maybe this is what you're getting at, there's definitely some historical straight jacketing going on in Victoria, and it's something that Paradox constantly struggles with, uh, and there's a balancing act going here, and I look forward to talking about that, but uh, this whole issue you're talking about, about a country being an artificial construct, I I think that's one of the more canny insights that Victoria too has into history. Uh, is how these these artificial constructs, what is a country, you know, what is Denmark, what is Sweden, what is greater Scandinavia? These are questions that uh, Victoria II answers very carefully, I, I think, and yes. not in the conventional way of civilization two, where it's something, you know, it's it's whatever borders you've drawn. That's Denmark, that's Sweden, that's Scandinavia. Yeah, that's that's what I, I was trying to drive at, is exactly that. I mean, it's not a... It's not a perfectly uh, detailed breaking down of those old artifices, but I think it goes further than any game that I play, that I, any game I, that comes to my mind, uh, in terms of making those more problematic than the sort of easy assumptions we like to use in other games. So I, f- I feel like we may have just gotten a little bit ahead of it um, talking about Victoria because I think there might be an issue where some people listening to this podcast maybe haven't played Victoria or played just enough of it to get turned off or scared and turn away. Uh, so I just want to talk a little bit about sort of the experience of playing Victoria and, and what, you're, what you're actually doing in this game. And... You know, tied in with that actually is is kind of the the one like one of the real remaining reservations I have about this game, uh, which is that you know I was, I was talking to Julian about it a, a few minutes ago, and I I I I, ta- I, I told him that after uh, you know several days of of playing Victoria Two, uh, I enjoyed myself, I had a great deal of fun, but each time I stepped away, it was sort of like time had just disappeared into the game in very much sort of a Vegas slot machine kind of way. Like the only thing missing was, you know, the ashtray and the, uh, you know, rail gin and tonic, uh, and, and the, uh, social security check. Um, it, it's just, it's it sort of, is it, what's so bizarre about Victoria too, is that the ways you can influence the course of events in this game is so completely different from what you're used to in strategy games. Like, right. In Victoria 2, it feels very much like it's almost like you're setting a metronome for your country and it's going to run and slowly a, you know, slowly a piece of, and slowly a piece of music is going to assemble around, you know, around the beat you set. But all you can do at first is just make these little like, you know, TikTok adjustments to what's going on in your country. And then you just have to let the game run. One of the key things in Victoria 2 is that a lot of times you just have to wait and see how decisions pan out before you start trying to react and correct mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You just kind of have to watch like how populations change, uh, how your economy evolves now that you've decided to upgrade uh, you know, your woodworking industry in a forest district or something like that. You've decided to encourage clergymen uh, to, you know, to, to start doing educational work around the country. These are all things that take place over a period not of days weeks feedback is not instant it takes months years sometimes to see the effects of what you're doing and that's really fascinating that's a really cool thing for strategy game to do on the other hand it does mean that a lot of the experience of playing victoria 2 is kind of this you know there's moments where tons of action is happening you know like a major war is going on you're kind of you know going day by day to try to make try and stay on top of things but a huge part of victoria 2 is watching sort of you know basically the tide of history you know ebb and flow uh, that's that's kind of what you're doing, and that can be really engrossing, and it's a really fascinating approach to a strategy game. On the other hand, it gives it this really strange pacing, and really involves just a lot of watching watching the ant farm. Rob, is this any different from Paradox's other titles, though? Because I, I hear you, I hear what you're saying, and I absolutely agree. And it's a disclaimer I would bring uh, to to any Paradox game. 
I would bring it to any Paradox game too, but Victoria 2 is is that times 50. Because... What? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because what we were talking about just now, uh, sort of the... If you were to look, take all the Paradox games and put them next mm-hmm. to each other, they're kind of telling the story of the rise and fall of the modern state in many ways. Like in Crusader Kings 2, it's all medieval politics. The state doesn't really exist. The state is actually very weak. It's all, you know, it's all, it's all in, driven by relationships, uh, relationships of power between people, which means that your entire empire you've crafted can crumble based on, you know, whether or not... Uh, you know, you, your 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 lord dies, and all the alliances that were pinned on him just collapse. It makes it really cool. It also means the board is constantly shifting. You have to react to things day to day. You're always like, you know, who likes me, who hates me. You know, make nice with this person, whatever. By the time you get to uh, Europe Universalis, the nation state has a ton of power just to kind of do whatever the hell it wants. There's actually not much much pushback. Uh, it's it's very institutionalized. It's sort of this vessel for political power that doesn't actually have a lot of count, a lot of accountability uh, to counterbalance it. Victoria 2 now it's sort of like the the modern state now has to respond to the needs of its people and man does that get complicated because now you're going from this absolutist model in EU4 where as the player slash ruler, yeah, you can do whatever the hell you want. You want to invade somebody, you can make that happen. You can kind of make things happen on your timetable as a player. In Victoria 2, things are operating on a generational timetable and that's I, I would argue that's a huge shift from what's going on in those other games. It, I, I, like I see this the framework. I, I'm fascinated that you you sort of unify paradox as games as mean about the rise and fall of the modern state. I've never thought of it that way. I, lo- I love the way you put that. Um, but that said, uh, I feel Victoria and Victoria Two specifically has a very different framework that I want to bring up. Um, but the basic moment to moment gameplay experience, uh, which is kind of what I hear you describing when you talk about the pacing. Uh, seems to me pretty consistent. Like paradox games to me are always about, okay, slow down time, maybe even pause it because I don't want to get caught unawares by anything. Now tweak some values. Okay, run at full speed. Uh, a month goes by. Uh, let's give it another week. Okay, pause it, pause it, tweak some values, tweak some values. Okay, run at full speed, run at full speed. I, I sort of feel that all the paradox games play that way. Um, but I do feel that uh, there, there's a qualitatively different sort of overarching narrative uh, going on in Victoria that I, I think is is probably part of what you're talking about and where would I, I would agree with you when you say Victoria is is that basic thing times 11 um, but I don't know that I want to get into I mean I, I don't want to jump ahead too far uh, but you like you feel that pacing is uh, is like an obstacle for new players or well I would argue yes a little bit um, mm-hmm. For me personally, I think the issue is it makes feedback. You, you like actually, Victoria Two gives you decent feedback once you sort of learn how to read the systems, read the demographics, read the uh, economic management stuff. But I think at first, especially because it tracks things sort of day by day, uh, and just you are you are dealing with just these torrents of information uh, that you know can be very macro level or it can go all the way down to what is a particular iron worker in you know pittsburgh feeling right. you know on june 21st 1875 it can get that detailed he's pissed right. by the way yeah he's, he's probably <laughs> he's not getting his luxury goods <laughs> uh so i mean that's that's kind of how that's that's kind of how i feel is that i think that uh, the the, the uh, it can be a little bit of a liability with pacing, but I also think that's tied into uh, it's going to look very um, non-interactive. I think in some ways, right. until you learn all the ways the game is trying to tell you, oh, this is this is the effect of these events you've seen play out in the past, you know, twenty minutes of play. Uh, this is how it's changing the world. Uh, but I mean, I don't know. Like Michael, you sort of you know got sucked down the rabbit hole. In this game a while ago actually like for a while mm-hmm. you've been sort of advocating for vicky too even though those of us on the show tend to be really skeptical of it so i'm curious like you know how you you ended up approaching this game and what clicked for you uh and whether or not you had issues with like um you know a learning curve with this game uh i think i did i got this and eu3 about the same time and I had the reaction I think most people probably had where I'd fire it up and I would look at a bunch of stuff and then I would just close it and play something else. 
Um, and it wasn't until I started reading some online forum comments and some AARs about uh, what, what can be done in this game. And it's one of the games that I, I really, really enjoy where it's almost more of a, it, it's kind of a skill set as a game. And it rewards, you know, looking behind the curtain. It, record, it rewards poking around and finding out all the little details. And um, I like the time period. So between those two things, Victoria is easily my favorite Paradox game. Um, it's the one that I fire up the most often. And uh, there's just, you know, it's like the Necco wafers of, of strategy games where most people probably won't like it, but I'm like that one guy in 20 who really, really, really likes it, and I get really excited about it. And uh, it just hits all the right notes for me. And I like the fact that there's so much information and in that after a while you start to learn where to look to find the things so that if you have a favorite um, fine furniture factory, you're going to know that you have to make a stockpile of tropical wood so they can make their stuff. Um, and it, it's the little little things like that and the little rewarding bits of play and the tech tree that I really enjoy that um, I think there's, there's a lot there for people who are willing to invest the time. And I think that willingness is implicit by having by being a Paradox game player. I, I think one of the most important things for a, a new person, a new player coming to Victoria to, to realize uh, is that although it's a detailed game, when you first come to this game, it's absolutely okay to ignore literally 90% of the detail in the game. It's mm-hmm. okay to just let time run. Uh, I compare, I've used this terminology with all Paradox games, but I feel it's particularly true of Victoria because of the deluge of, of detail that the metaphor I sort of use for Paradox games in Victoria is surfing. It's okay to just let this wave carry you along and to just ride it, experience it. Don't feel like you're going to direct it. Don't even worry that much about where you are. Just let it progress. Watch these things unfold. If you're like me and Michael, where you love the time period, which I'm I'm fascinated with it, uh, if you have an interest in history, it's going to show you all sorts of cool things as it goes on. And I feel one of the pitfalls for a new player is to get in at, what is 1836, I guess, when it starts, and to just let it run a few years and to be afraid that something is going to go wrong or that you're going to lose the game if you don't do the right thing in two years or that you need to hurry up and optimize some sort of a build or a tech research order. Um, I feel that's an that's that's just uh, the, the absolute that's the quickest way to kill Victoria 2 for a new player. You just have to resign yourself to ride along with it and let things happen your first playthrough. Uh, I think that's exactly right, and that's the same way I feel about um, Out of the Park Baseball, which is another sim where you watch like a video tutorial and they start digging into some really deep things. Like first you want to set this, and then you want to set that. And the only way I really got it is to go to the play games and just say play until next month. And a month just went by. What happened? What can I change based on that information? Um, getting hung up on those little details it, it could turn a lot of people off, like just off the bat. And, and for a lot of strategy gamers, I think that's kind of anathema. When you come into a strategy game and you're asked to make decisions, you generally want information about which one is more optimal and what's going to affect what and how many bundles of grain you're going to get for putting this worker there. Uh, I, I just feel the conventional model of strategy gaming and, and the kinds of people who really like the detail in a paradox game, uh, they probably have a hard time doing that, just sort of letting go and, and riding the wave. Um, I'm curious to hear about Eric's early experiences with uh, Victoria. Okay. Um, I'm reaching back now. It's It's been a couple of years, right, since we talked about this, Rob? And we compared it to... Yeah, uh, I think at the time we were both kind of doing a lot of American Civil War stuff with it, right? Yeah, yeah, we were comparing it to Pride of Nations, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, was, it was interesting um, in part because I tend to play in any game, I... I even if I pick, you know, an NFL game, the first thing I, I am drawn towards is usually some sort of an underdog uh, that I'm going to hopefully rise to prominence. Uh, and when when you were mentioning last week, Rob, via email, that you were really hoping to dig into uh, colonization and how it's been changed for Heart of Darkness, I thought, well, that's going to be a that's going to be a tough stretch for Sweden. Uh, <laughs> We're uh, we're battling to stay as a secondary power. There's no way we can reach any part of Africa that's available. Um, but I'll, I'll, you know, I put my the pedal down and saw what I could do. Um, eventually, got one little piece of 
southern Congo, I think. Let's see. When I first opened up Victoria 2, it was it was very much the shock of you have all of these options and none of them really do anything. Um at least in a in a direct feedback sort of way. It's no, like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um so yeah, you don't know that doing this here is going to create 10 times as much food as doing it over there. Um what you do know is that if you say uh, a slightly stronger yes to this, then the the secularists are going to be slightly more upset. Um, you have no idea what that means. You, I mean, I came into it as a, well, you know, secularism is pretty all right, and it's I don't really want to be a moralist nation. Oh my god, I don't think. Um. Yeah, the 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 classic problem of bringing your like modern like secular liberal values to Victoria Two and trying to play it that way. Like, yeah, my first time playing it, I was like, but why couldn't we just be sort of a secular humanist welfare state as Russia? <laughs> That's gonna work, right? Or you know, hey, maybe we can maybe we can resolve the civil war peacefully uh, just by you know like trying to stop the spread spread of slavery and really just having it like just talking it out. It, it uh, works in yeah. France, but not many other places. Yeah, it, it, I, I definitely feel there there is a there is a bit of that where you see some you see some political dilemmas that are reminiscent of things we 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 see today, and and definitely like you can track your political values against them. But the mm-hmm. trouble is, for this time and place, the smart strategic play is often to be a bit of a bastard. And, uh, you know, this is this is how I ended up basically, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I just I, I just sort of did really well in the game by using trickle down economics. <laughs> yeah. See, Rob, I love that when, when you when you phrase it that way, by being a bit of a bastard, uh, I feel that it's kind of the point of the game. You mentioned that Paradox's games to you are about the rise and the fall in the modern state. And that certainly applies to Victoria. But I see the overarching narrative of Victoria which is distinct from anything else Paradox has done, and again, a reason that I want to call Victoria an important game with a capital I, I see Victoria as about this enormously instructive lesson about how we got where we are today with modern values, with social consciousness, and how it's not this great enlightenment that just occurred overnight, but how it was an incredible struggle, and how it was violent, and how it was difficult for people, and furthermore, how it was mirrored by this huge rise in prosperity with the Industrial Revolution. So for, for me, Victoria 2, no matter what country you're playing, is all about how do you reconcile all this extra money that you're making with all the demands the people are making as they become increasingly socially conscious about modern values. I'm just fascinated that Victoria 2 charts those two things and forces them as kind of competing values as you you enter, as time progresses. Um, It's not so much about the rise of the modern state, to me, as it's about the rise of the modern mind. Um, And I love that about the game. And I I wanted to mention this, so I'll just kind of stick it in here, but, you know, one of my... absolute favorite thing about this game is that it it places such an emphasis on culture and how that was a large part of how countries became to you know gain the prestige it it um how many other games have these culture-based um tech trees that actually you know mean a damn thing i mean you could have like a a civilization game where you build a temple or something so you get plus one culture um and maybe your borders move out a little bit. But the fact that, A, you have a sphere of influence who are so enamored with your culture that they adopt it, but also that Paradox took the time to, to, to line out how culture advanced and how it adds to what made France great in that time period and what made the U.S. great in that time period instead of just having you know Cannon Barrels 1 and Infantry 2 and, and all the other things that come part and parcel with a strategy game. They also gave us culture like the importance of literature and and all those other things that that were formative for any country's history and you see with it too like you would think in any strategy game of course you want your your population to be educated you know i play sim city and yeah you know i want high schools and i want colleges and i want graduate schools and i want science projects because you know the more advanced people are the more productive they are uh there's this great tension in victoria too with uh, it's not called education, it's called consciousness, with as you raise this, people start realizing, uh, hey, you know, I pay taxes, I should also have health care. 
uh, wait a minute, how many hours a day am I supposed to work? You know, where's my labor union? Uh, wait a minute, how come I get to vote and these non-native cultures don't get to vote? Uh, like that, that there are problems that come with education in this time period. Uh, and I, I love what a valuable lesson that is for the, the rise of the modern mind. Yeah, and, and certainly something I, I, I really enjoy in Victoria, too, is, you know, you, you talked about that tension, but the, the way it plays out in, in the game is really interesting because you have certain classes of, of worker, certain classes of citizen that are necessary for your nation to sort of to advance along the economic uh, you know ladder. Like, you know, you can't just have a nation of farmers uh, you know, farmer, farmers and far, farmers and laborers, uh, who are just going to suddenly, you know, take to the factories and run them really well, and you're going to have really efficient, uh, effective factories. That's not going to happen. So suddenly, it's like, well, God, I guess people need to be able to read because now my industrial economy needs clerks. But then you teach them to read, and your literacy starts going through the roof. But then they start; they, they don't just learn to read like spreadsheets. They yeah, they they develop that they develop that awareness of all sorts of different causes, like as literacy and, and like as, as, as sort of the enlightenment ideals sort of spread throughout your, throughout your country. Um, you start to see all these different groups now start cropping up with their own values, and they sort all start developing their own consciousness. And it's this sort of like rising tide that floats all boats where on the one hand, you know, yeah, you, you've now laid the groundwork for your economy to be, economy to be modern and industrialized uh, and for your country to start really raking in the wealth. Uh, but at the same time, suddenly it starts to, in a lot of cases, fracture the nation, fracture the notion of of one body politic, of, of one nation, especially with like in Europe, you see it a lot uh, in, in Victoria, where suddenly, you know, if you're if you're Germany or one of the German states or if you're Austria, you know, all all you wanted to do was get someone to, you know, keep the books at a factory. And what did you get instead? A bohemian goddamn nationalist who's going to <laughs> keep rebelling every 15 years and you have to keep sending troops and put them down. And you look like a jerk for doing it. And I just I, I love I, I, I love that sort of, uh, you know, vi the, the vicious circles you can get into in Victoria. And I love the ways then you try to get out of them. How do you try to get out of them? Because they kind of just have – well, you know, I, there are ways to get – I mean, I guess that is the – it's basically like asking how do you play Victoria too. <laughs> but but sometimes, Rob, you can't get out of them, and they resolve themselves for you. And, and it gets at a little bit of what Eric was talking about before with this convention and many of these kinds of games where the question is, am I, am I a ruler? Am I just some immortal dude who is living for 100 years and is in power? Uh, Victoria 2 doesn't answer that question because – you, in a way, are not even that important. There are times where, uh, because Victoria 2 doesn't have like a win-lose state, you know, you're basically just enduring to see what happens over the course of its time period, uh, rebels can rise up, seize your country, institute the reform they want, and then give it back to you. So basically, you can get booted out of the game and... You, you know, the, the rebels can then implement health care or whatever, or, or they can change the rules for voting, and then they go away because they, they've forcibly taken what they've wanted. They've changed a gameplay mechanic, basically, and, and they give you back the game. So sometimes these vicious circles, they resolve themselves. You're just cut out of the loop. Uh, the population is like, well, screw you. It's not going to work out. Here's what we want. We're taking it. Okay, now see what you can do, tough guy. Because there's no going back, by the way. That's another cool lesson, is that once people are conscious of certain advances, and once you implement them, you, you can't take them back. This, this, this road down social consciousness is a one-way street. Oh, there's, there's something funny about the way that works out, because it, it seems like they, they storm the Capitol building, break down the door, force their way in, flip one light switch, and then walk back out. They, they, this, is another this is another fascinating aspect of the population model, is that you will see their rising consciousness. You can see any population group's rising militancy. Mm -hmm. You can see a, a movement then created. And these are all listed. You can go to a movement screen, oh, yeah. and you can see a movement. And there are ways you can address it. You can either try to suppress it. And I love that. It's a, that and that'll – down the road, you're basically just kicking the can down the road if you do that. Or you can give them what they want. If you don't, if you let it fester long enough, then they'll take it away from you. So you're right in that sense of, yes, they, they take over the capital, they flip the universal voting switch, and then they melt away. But there's this definite sense of a growing 
you know, Rob used the word tide before, and that's kind of what it's like. I mean, you, you can't stop what's coming. You know, you can see it on the horizon. You can see it grow. You can see it increase. You can see how many people are a member of this movement. Um, and you can maybe delay it, but eventually you're probably going to have to give them what they want or they're going to storm the Capitol, like you said, and flip that switch. Uh, well, and something I find really interesting about Victoria, and a lot of this, by the way, is not new with uh, Heart of Darkness. I actually want to get to in a little bit why I think Vict- Heart of Darkness really uh, sort of puts Victoria over over the top for me. Uh, but one of the cool things is that as a rule, as sort of this, you know, disembodied ruler, basically, popular discontent, popular will is a tool you can use as well as try to resist. Like, it's not just people are welling up and saying, we demand these things from you and give us some of your power, give us more representative government, give us a, you know, better social safety net. What you can do is if you want to advance your country very quickly, if you if you see like economic or and political advantages from sort of uh, liberalizing fairly quickly, you can actually make decisions that will encourage people to increase their awareness, to 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 increase their political involvement, to sort of force the issue uh, so that suddenly you can institute reforms that you want to institute. Um, otherwise, do you mean you, like the election tweaks, like what, when the election comes up and you you sort of tweak the population models in the different areas. Right, but then you also try right. to set up the next election results, right? Because like when you see something saying like, oh, you can either, uh, you know, some event has happened in your industrial heartland. Oh, right. And right. you can either do something that's going to make the arch capitalists uh, very happy and reduce their militancy, or you can turn most of your poor people into socialists. And right. actually... You might want most of your poor people to be socialists for some reason. Uh, you that might enable you to suddenly like it will enable a political movement that will force some reforms through that are going to attract immigrants for you that are going to make uh, your uh, that are going to make your people actually happier uh, overall instead of just sort of these uh, factory wage slaves. Uh, so there's there's some cool ways you can influence that. And if you try to resist all of it, you do risk, yes, what, what, what Tom was describing there, you know, the, the sudden uprising where they basically just flip the switch. What was it? Um, the revolution, revolutions of 1848 were basically every government in Europe uh, you know, half the governments in Europe basically toppled, uh, but they didn't actually like. There were no massive civil wars. It was just, I think, in 1848, suddenly everyone had to basically give ground and significantly loosen uh, the pol- political system. It wasn't a hugely bloody thing, but suddenly overnight, everyone was some variant of a representative uh, republic, and that you know that's kind of how Victoria II happens, and you have these moments of. You know, the tide swells up and suddenly everyone's dealing with the same wave of revolution. And how do you handle it? And that's part of the narrative arc, too, isn't it? Like it starts out every every government, for the most part, has got a nice, comfortable, conservative ruling party. And then there's the rise of the liberals over time and they start to muscle out the conservatives. And then the reactionaries appear and the, uh, I think, anacro uh, uh, anarchists, basically yeah. anarcho-liberalists or whatever they're called, they yeah. get a toehold in there. Uh, it's sort of watching that pie chart uh, get more crowded as time goes on. For the uh, yeah, and then the the ruling party too. It, this is another brilliant thing that Victoria does is the ruling party determines the parameters of the gameplay. You know, it determines. What is it going to cost you to get a military going? How much power do you have over f- factories or subsidies? You know, how much, where can you set the tax slider? Uh, what are the rules in terms of how people will assimilate uh, into, into your new territories? Uh, like, I, I love how that ruling party conceit uh, is, dictates what kind of game you're going to be playing. Yeah, and I had an uh, example of uh, both that and what Rob was talking about, where I... Uh, just yesterday ran into a situation where I needed to uh, deal with, it was, I think, uh, workplace safety. I needed to increase workplace safety laws uh, and regulations, but I couldn't do it because I didn't have the right party in power. Uh, and so I ended up making those decisions where I said, well, you know, we have universal voting. So if I make all of the poor people in this state 40% more socialist, yeah, I think that's actually what I want right now because I need I need them to vote these guys out so that I can make this right. thing. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm just going to end up shooting people in the streets of Stockholm who are not going to win the revolution because I have all my guards there. But, yeah, it's just one of those spots where I had to make that decision. 
Yeah, one of the things I haven't experienced with the game, and this, uh, again, this is true of Europa Universalis and Crusader Kings and certainly Victoria, is the experience can be different based on what country you play. You know, different countries offer different historical arcs, different basic gameplay experiences. I've never fiddled much with the rise of communism. Have any of you guys ever uh, gone down that particular path in Victoria? Not really, no. Um, a little bit. So in the game I just played... Uh, I didn't end up going communist. Uh, I actually played a really reactionary game uh, as Bavaria, uh, and it went awesome, by the way. Uh, but the the issue is, so for me, I had to launch a pretty vicious crackdown against the uh, communists, and I broke the uh, com- the communist revolution, and then I instituted a ton of workplace reforms uh, because the, <laughs> the basically I had to bring in a reactionary reactionary party, and we kind of had this, you know. Uh, you know, come to Jesus moment where it was, we've got to change our economy. What was interesting was the communists got a hold of France and France was like the number two power in Europe at the time. They were, they were just gigantic, but the communist revolution hit at this moment where France was really overextended and its armies were really depleted. And so overnight, uh, like the second most powerful nation in Europe just fell to communism and they brought in a communist government. And then you had these waves of uh, counter-revolutions starting to break out where France was just racked by these convulsions where, okay, the, uh, the communists were in power, but then there was a white counter-revolution trying to bring back royalism. And so this, the country just went to civil war. And once those guys had exhausted themselves and the communist government was teetering, um, the anarchists somehow took power. And uh, at that point, the entire country just imploded. It was astonishing. So Tom, did you did you actually uh, you know uh, raise the red banner? I have not done that. So that's one of the things that uh, uh, I Victoria too is so huge. And sitting down to play a country to me that's like I don't know about twenty hours. That's probably like fifteen hours. Like this is kind of like each country you sit down to play. It's almost like a JRPG. Like for me, it's a huge time investment. So I've spent time with uh, certainly Sweden, France, uh, I think Austria. Every now and then I'm tempted to sit down and play as one of the non-great powers, but it just feels like the experience is so compromised because it's it's clearly based on – I mean there's so many aspects of the gameplay that only the great powers can avail themselves of. So sometimes I'll sit down and think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play Brazil, and it just feels so – I mean I guess that's, that's one of the ways you can play is take Brazil and make them a world superpower. It's a viable way to do it. Uh, but uh, that's not something that I've done yet. And another thing I haven't done yet is trying to play Russia, you know, trying to shepherd a communist nation through to the modern era. I have not done. Yeah. I, uh, and, um, oh, well, America, by the way, it's, I'm, I'm in the middle of an America playthrough right now, you know, dealing with the struggle with, with slavery and the Civil War. Uh, that's also new to me. Uh, so I would be curious to hear about y'all's experiences with that, because uh, that's obviously a huge draw for a lot of people coming to Victoria. Yeah, I, w- I would just argue it's I-, I think one of the things Victoria does really well and always did was that just not it's not just the great power experience is sort of different from uh, the other the other powers in the game, but it's also it's also a matter of every country actually plays incredibly different from one another. It's not like EU where a lot of the games kind of the a lot of the countries the 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 tactics might be might change a little bit. Uh, the pacing might change a little bit, but it's kind of, it, it's still recognizably the same game. Playing like the United States in Victoria 2 is a completely different game. It is a completely right. different strategy game than the one you play as Prussia. And that is a completely different strategy game from the one you play as the UK. Like your concerns are not remotely the same. Uh, even though the mechanics you use are, are often often identical, uh, the, 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 the things you're up against are entirely unique to your situation, and I find that fascinating. I, I think when I first came to it, I played it as a as an American Civil War game. Uh, the years leading up to it, and then sort of the uh, race for the race for the West Coast, and it's really cool to sort of know American history, and you play this, and you start to see all the ways in which, like, um, you know, what we consider. It, you know, American history and these kind of inevitable, inevitable tides of progress were not, in fact, inevitable. Uh, you know, it's there. You know, there had to be a race to colonize uh, the Pacific Northwest to keep the you know British out. There had to be you know a showdown with Mexico, uh, and if that went poorly or it happened at an inopportune moment, uh, the entire history of the American Southwest changes. And I find that 
really fascinating Victoria. And it's also one of the advantages of this being a, uh, a mature series in the sense that it's the sequel. It's had two expansions. Uh, Paradox has just added in so much uh, what you might call historical chrome for each of the different uh, nations in terms of what are called the decisions, which are these uh, uh, historical uh, decisions, I guess, that each country had to make uh, in terms of adding events and dynamic events. Uh, it's just now that Victoria 2 has its second expansion, there's just so much there to make each country feel different from each other country. So I wanted to get a little bit into Heart of Darkness itself, just because... I will admit, I uh, Victoria Two. I I bounced off of Victoria Two uh, when I when I first reviewed it a couple years uh, a couple years ago. Uh, has it been three years since it came out? I think so. Oh my god! Uh, yeah. So three years ago, I I just I, I felt it was too uninvolving. I felt I was spending way too much time watching. I also felt like for a lot of the game, it was just kind of dull. There wasn't enough happening. Um, the game <laughs> of politics was uh, really. All the potential conflicts were so charged that I found, for the most part, my, my Victoria 2 games tended to be very status quo. Uh, and so it mostly became a management sim of citizens and politics and such. And it was cool. A lot of these ideas were nifty. But the, the stakes weren't that high. It was just kind of watching your country run. Uh, with Heart of Darkness, I feel like maybe it has gotten a little more ahistorical in some ways. Uh, and a lot of this comes through the uh, crisis mechanics, uh, which I think kind of a, a little bit borrowed from uh, the idea of the crisis, at least is borrowed a little bit from Pride of Nations. But it's it's very it's implemented very differently here. Uh, but the, the crisis, the crises uh, show up routinely now on the international stage and. Now Victoria 2 is host to all these potentially splendid little wars, or potentially they're World War One, and you're never quite sure which is which. And so my, now Victoria 2 has all this really cool political stuff, but now it's action-packed, just the way I like my historical strategy gaming. <laughs> this is the command and conquer of Paradox Games. <laughs> uh, what I like more about the crises, I mean... Sure, action-packed I would go with, but what it does for me, Rob, uh, Heart of Darkness, with the crisis system, uh, what they were trying to do with the newspaper, which I honestly couldn't care less about, I just let that little number build up, that the newspaper's cute, but uh, it doesn't work for me, uh, what I think both of those things are trying to do is give you a sense of the larger living, breathing world. And, and giving you, if you're one of the great powers, uh, an opportunity to weigh in on things happening elsewhere. Because historically, these games, you just play your nation, you kind of have your nose down in your geographical vicinity, and if you're colonizing, you're concerned with that. But if there's wars going on between other people, a lot of times they don't concern you and you don't care. Uh, the crisis system, to me, is a great way to change that and to draw you out of that traditionally isolationist shell uh, and to get you mixed up in things where, whoops, maybe you didn't mean to get mixed up in that. Uh, and that's hands down my favorite thing about uh, Heart of Darkness is that, that crisis system. Yeah, so the way it works in in Victoria 2 uh, with, with Heart of Darkness installed is now what you get are flashpoints uh, that sort of break out into the open every once in a while. And uh, really quickly, there's two sides to the issue and coalitions form over the issue and the great powers slowly weigh in and it can be it can be resolved diplomatically and someone concedes uh and the crisis is diffused or if nobody ever quite manages to to wrap up the crisis it turns into a war um with some alliance uh, war goals basically so whoever's brought their the great powers all end up fighting over whatever and it could be pretty inconsequential we had um a world war breakout over uh, moravia uh, which was one of my bavarian dominions uh so it, i mean it was it was it was totally absurd for that turn for that to turn into a cataclysm but it totally did uh because by that point in the game that's kind of just what happens in Europe. You have great wars, and the only way to end them is through complete destruction, uh, complete capitulation. Uh, but it they happen with enough frequency, and the results are varied enough uh, in terms of how intense the conflict is, that now Victoria 2 involves a lot more... Uh, there's, there's a lot more rough and tumble to it, and the, the diplomacy now, you have to stay much more involved in monitoring what's happening there because... 
if you don't sort of play that diplomacy system, if you don't sort of respond to crises, uh, eventually you can discover that your sort of alliance structure has been rendered outmoded. Uh, it's it's You just don't have the right friends anymore, and you've been on the wrong side of too many conflicts, and now you know, they're going to come for you. Uh, so I think that's, I, I think it's a very cool system and it really turns Victoria 2 into much more of my kind of strategy game. And I think that in turn made all those other things we've talked about feel a lot more relevant because now it's not just, oh, I've increased trade output and tax revenue. Fantastic. What do I do with it? Nothing. Now I need that to, you know, basically make my country a player on the global stage. Did anyone get a chance to play with the new um, colonialism aspect of it? Sure, I, yeah. I did. I I was France and had had some fun with it. Well, it's kind of funny what because by the time the uh, Victoria Two starts out, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Like Africa is pretty much all that's left. Everything else is pretty much spoken for. Mm-hmm. But Africa is this great big, huge, empty. You know, there there's some bit. They're toe. Everybody's got. Not everybody, but lots of folks have toeholds. You know, Eric talked about his Sweden. I think Sweden even gets some sort of toehold. Is it around Ghana? Or there's some place where I think Sweden even has a little bitty piece of the Africa pie. But but it's it's the colonization is basically just hey, does anybody want to go to Africa? Uh, and yeah, and so their new system it seems like it's based on the bigger your navy, the more colonial property you can hold. Uh, I think that's pretty much the basic gameplay rule there. Uh, if you want to have a lot of colonies in Africa, build a big navy. Um, and there's a lot of elbowing, too, I guess, and that's where some mm-hmm. of these crises emerge. But it's all about, yeah, do you want to carve out a piece of Africa? So so how did it go for you, Michael? You said you were France? Yes. Yeah, so I played France, which is something I actually hadn't done until I played a game after getting this because I wanted to experience all of the, the new stuff. Um, so you... You don't get to do much until 1870, which is kind of the gate where um, the last tech you need, which is machine guns. Um, <laughs> so once machine guns is researched, and one of the big things they changed is that it's not who gets there first, but once somebody gets to that point, um, it opens up for almost everybody else. Right. So that starts, um, there's no real head start, which means that there's a lot of Africa that's left unclaimed that all at once everybody gets to start rushing for. Um, and then, you know, based on where you have naval bases and how much Navy power you have right. and other tech, which can support what the minimum life rating is for the countries or the land that lets you, now you have to create a, if I recall, you have to create a protectorate. Well, first you have to settle there. You have to just send people and then hope nobody else gets there at the same time. And then you create a protectorate and then you can make it a colony. And once you do that, then all of the attached places can be settled in that way. So you're kind of limited in the coast. But once you get that first one, as soon as that's done, every country or every little section that touches it, now you can make that one into protectorate and that into a colony. And so there's just these blossoms that form over Africa for everybody else who's also moving in. Um, And you're kind of all racing for the same spot and moving in towards the center. And I thought that I was skeptical until it actually happened, and then I found it was actually a really fun mechanic. Um, the you know less than pleasant historical uh, context aside, uh, it was you know one of the more fun parts of the game. Yeah, uh, there's uh, there's also been some criticism on the the forums, and I don't I don't recommend drawing they any conclusions. Everything on the forums. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't recommend drawing any conclusions about any Paradox game based on anything you read on the forums. Uh, but one of the criticisms, and I can sort of understand this because it seems a little weird to me, is that because of the way it works with your, forget what the resource is called, but it's basically your colonial capacity. It's a straight up number, and when you start a protectorate somewhere, it takes a certain amount of that capacity, and you see how many points you have left over uh, to to found new colonies or to expand, expand your holdings. Uh, one of the ways you then get this resource back is you release your colony into a dominion. Uh, and it's historically, I guess, what the UK did with like South Africa and I believe uh, yeah, Australia. Man. Yeah, Canada. Uh, so uh, one of the criticisms then is that all these countries are racing into Africa. They're founding colonies and then releasing them as these weird little independent dominions and that Africa becomes a quilt work of independent dominion, the dominions from other countries, uh, which is not historically, of course, what happened. Uh, and I think it's something that I've seen in the patch notes 
uh, Paradox is, is addressing uh, is how the AI will release dominions and, and handle its colonial resource. And they are really good about patches and tweaking the AI. And having played from the first one and through a lot of patches and then the first expansion and the second expansion, you know, all the other things, all the other bolted on bits aside, you know, their improvement on the fundamental systems have just been phenomenal. And the game plays much cleaner than it did at the beginning. And things make a lot more sense down to, you know, how capitalists think. And uh, they, they always polish it pretty well after a certain amount of time. Well, and even the interface, which has been historically something that I, that, that's a drum that I will beat at, you know, at a moment's notice, is bad interfaces. I just can't abide that. And they've just gotten so much better with their interfaces as well. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've written out a list of the hotkeys, and I can just quickly tap a hotkey for the different map filters. And of course, the F1 keys bring you to each of the what is it, like eight basic information screens. Yeah. Uh, it feels like everything, there's nothing more than one layer deep, which is something, by the way, that I still drove me crazy about Crusader Kings. I, I, I love some of the things in that game, but still that that interface just drove me bonkers. If I wanted to like look at two rulers, I, that, that, I still feel they yes. didn't quite get it right in Crusader Kings 2. I don't feel now, when I sit down to play Victoria 2, I feel like, yes, uh, you know, Paradox has finally got an interface where everything is just one button press away. Um, so I'm real happy with how they've with how the, the interfaces with this has worked out. Yeah, and I, and I think it does open it a little bit to like the game can look a little spreadsheety at times, but like it's all right there. And actually, yeah. it's you know a lot of times, you know a lot of times, and I think this is a mistake that I, I made the first time I was getting into Victoria too. Um, is it feels like there's so much information there you have to know what it all means. Whereas a lot of times, what you, that information is really presented to do is to like let you stick your finger in the wind and just sort of see generally how things are going. Victoria's 2 is a game about sort of perceiving trends out of a ton of individual loosely related collections of data. And I find that really interesting that you don't, you know, you can you can break it down and try to track each individual thing, but that's not really the important part. What you're trying to do is sort of get a general picture out of all these little different uh, you know, vignettes around your empire. I consider it uh, one of the highest praises I can give Victoria to is I almost never need to look in the ledger. <laughs> like if, if in Paradox's other games, if I yeah. have to look into the ledger for something, I feel like yeah, you guys have screwed this up. This shouldn't I shouldn't have to dig around in your awful ledger. <laughs> um, the the other thing I would you know I, I find really cool is just. Uh, you know, Tom, you said you don't like to play the uh, the minor powers as much because uh, yeah, there are a lot of things that only great powers can do. Uh, but with the crises and everything, and the way prestige is prestige is handed out for gaining military victories, for getting concessions from larger powers, um, there's actually quite a lot of things you can do as a minor power to sort of move up in the world, and it feels really good when you manage to. Right become a great power but the other thing that i think is maybe more important is that with a country like britain or prussia or something at the start of victoria 2 there are so many things happening that information overload uh perceiving what's actually going on is just is an impossible task because there's so many moving parts to your empire whereas yeah. these smaller countries it's much easier to get a sense for okay here's what's going on with my factories here's what's going on with my uh you know uh goods pipeline uh here's what's going on with diplomacy and the the alliance structure around me and so it's, it's a really good way to sort of slowly immerse yourself in the game rather than try to you know take control of a basically you know fully operating modern economy uh a a rapidly changing country and just try to make the best of it uh it's it's a lot easier in many ways to play someone who's uh, starting from behind Rob, did you get Bavaria to be a great power? I totally did. Okay. Did, did you experience one of the few things that I kind of bugged me, and I'm not sure if there's a way around it, but when you're hovering in the eighth place slot and it's very possible for you to become a great power, but then get passed up by the other eighth place slot. And then what happens is all of the cool stuff that you get to do as a great power gets taken away, but then yeah. it comes back and then it gets taken away. And... Like I said, there's not a great fix for that. I just always found that kind of annoying. So when I played Sweden or Norway or somebody and I was <laughs> trying to get up through the ranks and I would get just start getting my first sphere and then whoop, it, it well, goes away because of, I don't know. 
Well, so it, it's going away because it's sort of measuring you across your prestige, your industrialization, and your military. What usually happens is that that eighth place st- slot, there is sort of a moment as the two sort of pass each other. Uh, and it seems like it's not instant. Like, if the eighth guy drops into ninth, he's not immediately dropped his great power. It seems. Or like you get a warning. Period. Yeah, you get yeah, a warning yeah. that basically yeah. says, hey, you've got until this date to clean your act up, buddy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're going to have moments where you could, just the way it works out, if you're close enough, you could have moments where you're sort of flickering between the two, which is a little con- contrived, but uh, whatever. Usually there's enough momentum behind the shit, the power shift that's happening uh, that it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, what was really cool is how I became a great power, actually, was I forced Britain to surrender to me. Uh, wow. They conceded defeat in a great war just because they had too much else going on, and the prestige gain I had was just monumental and once you're great power you get priority in the international market which meant suddenly my factories which have been sort of you know produce working at like 50 percent output because they couldn't always get the uh inputs they needed suddenly like bavaria was just rolling in cash and steel and guns and it was awesome uh then germany declared war on me uh so that that was less good but that's the other side of uh, of gaining prestige is as you move up, you get more attention from other people. Sweden, for example, gets to sit in somebody else's sphere and be protected by them. So you, either you're sphered by Russia or by the UK usually. Um, and as soon as you're a big enough deal to not be in somebody else's sphere anymore, all of a sudden the gloves are off and everybody's coming at you, which is sort there's there's a there's a strategy where you, you might want to stay at the ninth or 10th spot just because it's, as long as you have somebody else that has your back because you're in their sphere, you don't necessarily have to worry about Prussia invading. Absolutely. And this is, and sort of to close this out, I think that's actually one of Victoria 2's most important insights is that in every other game prestiges this bullshit way of keeping score in a, in a Paradox game. Like, it helps you with diplomatic overtures and everything, but really it's kind of this weird way to uh, keep score. They're making it more relevant with, with each game. But in Victoria 2, it is this totally, like, it is a total game of perception of power and influence. And most of it is sort of built on sort of lies and reputation. Uh, you know, it's not always clear, you know, your your prestige is not necessarily commensurate with your, with the actual power of the country. But what's amazing is that there are moments you find yourself having to protect and defend your prestige, even though it's near suicidal for you to do so, because there's no way down from it. You have no choice but to step up and defend your status as a great nation because your economy hinges on the perks you get and the influence you wield around the world uh, as great power. And if you just start making pragmatic decisions and say, well, how does this really affect things? It's just, you know, it's just going to change other countries' views of me. No, no, no. That's the entire game. And that's why by the end of the game, every war has this risk of turning into World War One. But this is another strength of Victoria too, though, and actually a lot of Paradox's games, is that just because you lose a war, just because you get slapped down by a bigger power, uh, you don't you don't lose the game. You know the game doesn't end. It's all about riding this wave of history, and that wave can include these troughs where you've maybe Rob your Bavaria is just going to get completely crushed by Germany. Uh, you don't have to stop playing. You're not going to get kicked out of the game at that point. Um, and it gets to what Michael mentioned earlier in that, in a way, this isn't so much a game, it's just a simulation. You know, it's Paradox doesn't have this mandate to balance it. It's not like the UK is ever going to get nerfed. Uh, and it's not like every country can have as viable a path to victory because there's no real victory. Uh, it's just about riding along and seeing what happens to you. You know, to close it out here, I, I, I kind of feel like uh, you know, when when it came out a few years ago, I, I felt like Victoria Two was so much more, so much more em- emphasis seemed to be on the trade game, on the way trade worked, on industrialization, uh, on domestic politics, and I felt like I, there just wasn't enough for me to do. Uh, with Heart of Darkness, though, and maybe it's just that I'm not reviewing it this time, and I'm just playing it more as just a more casual experience, and I don't feel compelled to sort of micromanage all the different things in it just because I need to see how they work. It's possible that's that's sort of changed my impression of it, too. But my feeling playing it now three years later is just there's so much more interesting strategic stuff to do, and it, and it dovetails so much more 
so much nicer with the domestic and economic stuff we've talked about uh, that really now playing Victoria 2 is this complete it's this complete experience whereas I think prior to Heart of Darkness it all felt much more discreet it felt like there were all these different things happening and they did sort of loosely fit together but in a way that wasn't totally satisfying for me as a player it felt more like a model less like a game now it feels a little bit more like you know the great game, right? The the, the Bismarckian game of uh, balancing domestic politics against uh, realpolitik. Yeah, I gotta I gotta disagree, Rob. I mean, I think it was pretty much there all along. It, it's just easier than ever now to get into it, uh, and I think it, there's just much more polish. Um, and uh, Chris Chris King is he the designer? I, I just yes. feel like his his vision is just at this point just so well realized that Rob, you can no longer deny the greatness of Victoria. <laughs> All right, I think I, I think I owe Chris a uh, a bottle of fine scotch then, because uh, we've given him a lot of shit about it over the years, and I got I got to say in this last week, uh, I kind of get it. I kind of. And what get better it. and what better day to do that than on Victoria Day? Than on Victoria Day. <laughs> All right, well that does it for today's show. Uh, my thanks to, well, geez, Michael, you're right here, so I can just thank you to your face. Ah. Thank you so much for producing this episode. Uh, I'm sure you're going to cut it together in just a way that's going to make us all sound like rubes, and you will occasionally bring forth a shining light of truth. That's that's uh, usually the plan, so... I, I look forward to hearing the uh, Hermes cut of this episode. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so... Uh, and always, as always, like thanks for you know producing every episode. Uh, it's always much appreciated. And thanks to Eric and Tom for uh, joining us on a Sunday and uh, spending the week playing Victoria 2. I hope it was not too much of a hardship. Uh, for Tom, it doesn't sound like it was. <laughs> nope, not at all. I'm always happy to, to not only play Victoria 2, but to bring along the pom-poms and uh, cheer loudly and enthusiastically for it. Thanks for having me. All right. Hail Victoria. Good night, everybody. Good night. All right. Rah, rah. <laughs>